Welcome to Mormon Visual Culture, a podcast presented by the Zion Art Society and hosted by me, Micah Christensen. This year, we celebrate the 50th anniversary of President Spencer W. Kimball's landmark talk, The Gospel Vision of the Arts, through discussions with prominent artists, collectors, and scholars about the artwork that has inspired them and shaped LDS culture. Today, we have an interview with the sculptor Michael Aaron Hall. Hall returned two weeks ago from New York, where he was the recipient of the prestigious National Sculpture Society's Alex J. Edel Grant. Hall is a local sculptor who works both in bronze and in stone, who's trained in Italy, trained back east, and who has a long connection to local artists that have an outsized international presence, such as Avard Fairbanks, his great uncle. In our discussion, we talk about Michelangelo's tomb to Lorenzo de' Medici, and we talk about Michael's own training. Uh, he, it's especially uh, interesting uh, to me as I think back about this discussion, as we talk about how Michael conceives of his works and executes them, each one of them receiving a different approach as is necessary for the sculpture that he sees. Um, I hope you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Michael Hall, welcome. I am thrilled to have you here on Mormon Visual Culture. I am very excited to be here today. So we, uh, we're coloring a little bit outside the lines today. Usually, for, to, to start these conversations, we pick a work of art by an LDS um, artist and talk about him before getting into your own career. But you, you wanted to choose a work by Michelangelo, and you've chosen the tomb of Lorenzo de' Medici Correct. in Florence. Um, we before before we describe it, which which I'll I'll uh, I'll talk about the historical background. You're going to describe it. Tell us why you chose it. Um, I chose it because for me, this particular group of statues is what I consider to be a game changer in my own career. So several years ago, I had the opportunity to study in Italy, study marble carving, and. Um, a few of my fellow students and I decided to go to Florence one day, and we, we caught a late train, and we get to Florence, and we decided, well, we're going to go see the Chapel of the Medici. And we went to the chapel, and we found out that they were closing early that day. Hmm. They said, we're only going to be open for about 20 more minutes, but you're welcome to pay full admission and come on in. <laughs> and so, so, so pay full admission, but... 20 minutes. 20 minutes. That's all you get. Yeah. 20 so, minutes is not a lot of time to absorb something like it's this. It's not. So, but three of us decided that we were going to do it. And I think there were about five people that decided that they were just going to wait and come back in another day. And we went inside. And I remember walking through the, the hallways and the different rooms before you got to the Chapel of the Medici. And, and then when I entered the room, it was an incredible experience. It's very hard to describe what happened. Um, but I remember being able to feel a power emanating from that room. And it was, it was life-changing for me. And I remember looking at my friends that I, um, that I was there with and watching the expressions on their faces. And I could tell that they were experiencing the exact same thing that I was experiencing. And we were three very different men from different walks of life. And we were all experiencing the same feeling, the same power. 
And even though we were only there for 20 minutes, it, it changed each one of us. And after we left the chapel, we walked outside, and one of the, the women that was in the group with us, she said, what happened to you guys when you were in there? So she even noticed discernibly a Just difference. Just the expression on our faces when we walked out. She could tell that something had happened to us. And we all tried to explain to the other people in the group what our experience had been. And all of them had resolved to come back on the train the next morning so they could experience the same thing that, that we were experiencing or had experienced. So like them, I want you to describe to, to us the difference, what, what you experienced. But before you do, let's talk about for what it is. Since, since we're, we're handicapped with this, with this format of an of a audio, we're talking about something that's visual... <laughs> Um, let's just describe what it is briefly. This is this is a chapel dedicated to the Medici family mm-hmm. that is is connected to the um, the Church of San Lorenzo, and San Lorenzo had been around since three hundred something A.D. and um, had had various manifestations architecturally over the years, mm-hmm. but up until I think it was the four, mid fourteen hundreds, the fifteenth century, Brunelleschi was tasked with making the church over again. Mm-hmm. And a hundred years later, almost, almost to the year, Michelangelo, who is architect and sculptor, comes in and is given the commission by the Medici family to create a tomb for Lorenzo the Magnificent. Mm-hmm. So this is, a, this is a chapel that's part of the larger church. Mm-hmm. So for those who aren't familiar with, with the Catholic churches and their formats, is there's often... A, within the nave, which is the central part of the church, there is the principal altar, but then there are often side altars and chapels. And this is one of those side altars and chapels, the most magnificent of them. Yep. And, and uh, Michelangelo had an intimate relationship with the Medici. He was from a small family. There was a banking family. The Medici were a much more powerful banking <laughs> family. And uh, he was sent as a young man, as a to, to uh, go study in Florence. And um, he kind of rejected the academics and took up more and more the art side. Mm-hmm. And his talent was seen by Lorenzo. And he grew up in Lorenzo's house like a, along with the other Medici children. Yeah, Lorenzo was like a father figure to him. And it, it seems like um, it, it was truly um, a, unique, a unique pairing of patron, um, father... Um, educator and that that relationship between them, and what he creates is not just the tomb. You you um, said alluded to the idea that it's not just one thing. Hmm. It's Michelangelo created the architectural setting by 1524 that had been finished, right. and then he goes back, and well he doesn't go back by the end of the by the mid 1530s, almost 15 years later. from the beginning of the project, he's added sculpture to the architecture. Mm -hmm. So he did architecture plus sculpture. Mm -hmm. So now with that historical background, can you describe what, 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 what it looks like? Okay. Well, the first thing that I noticed when I went in is I noticed the figure, uh, the figures of, um, dusk and dawn with, I think it's, uh, Lorenzo, 
right. in the background. There are two tombs. There's one that's for Lorenzo. For, and one for Giuliano. And it's it's like a doorway with an arch above it and then a right. statue above that. Uh-huh. And it kind of forms almost like a triangular shape. You have um, Giuliano and Lorenzo sitting a little bit above the the allegorical figures that are placed below. So there's two at each of their feet. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And so I was struck by Aurora at the very at the from the very beginning. That's dawn, right? Dawn. Uh-huh. Okay. And then dusk and then I moved over to night and day. These are the the four pieces that spoke to me. So the figures that are above the door in the archway above the door, the the lentil. Mhm. There are these two, and lounging may not be the most respectful word of <laughs> what they're doing, <laughs> but they're they're kind of back to back, right? With with their their torsos reclining to, and the recline, reclining reclining better mm-hmm. word, and 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 their feet drape over the edges of the door, right? Mm-hmm. So it kind of forms an arch, a little bit of an arch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. They're they are, um, the strangest combination and I'm saying strange from from a fairly modern perspective mm. of this idea that that they're they're in this nether world or this this mixed world between being decorative parts of an architectural setting and being standalone sculptures yeah so and and, and for me out of all of the works from Michelangelo I I grew up just enamored with Michelangelo, with the Sistine Chapel, with his other his, his other works. But when I got to experience them um, face to face, this was the one that had the most impact on me. This why group of of sculptures in this setting, it had the most impact. Why do you think that is? I, what was it? I don't know. Do you know if you can distill it? I don't know. And I, maybe maybe it's it's not a great idea to try and well, distill it. It's almost like like trying to. To, to love something to death by overanalyzing it. Maybe I've been I trying. I've been trying to understand, and I think it's good. I think it's good to try and figure this out because I've been trying to mm-hmm. um, for the past several years, ever since 2009. That's that's when I went. Um, I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that that he was free to do the type of work that he wanted to do. I don't think he had a lot of oversight. On so these this pieces. is this. So in in other words, this is. Solely Michelangelo's This is vision. him at his best, in my in my opinion. And I know he had assistants that were helping him on this, but I think he got to do what he wanted to for the first time. This you is know, his true essence coming through. One of the things that, that is remarkable to me about the, the historical moment, it seems like it's not just him. There are other artists that get this, like Bernini. But they get kind of this, this trifecta, in in my opinion. First of all... They get a space that has a practical use Mm -hmm. that people are actually frequenting Mm -hmm. on a regular basis as part of their church or daily life or civic responsibilities, right? Mm -hmm. So this isn't like a modern-day gallery where you go see a quote-unquote show that's up temporarily, isn't part of your normal everyday life. Those things are kind of superficial events, if I were to put it in a really negative thing, where you go to a show and see the sculpture. Mm -hmm. This is a chapel— where the family goes and and for high holidays for for weekly mass and they also go to see the tombs of their ancestors which is part of their maybe more habitual than it is for us who go <laughs> less frequently so this is a place that's frequented right. on a regular basis number 1 number 2 is he actually gets to shape 
architecturally where his sculptures go. He mm-hmm. is the architect mm-hmm. plus the sculptor. He and gets to decide on lighting, on positioning, on everything. And especially with sculpture, I mean, that lighting is crucial and placement is crucial. If something is too low or too high, sometimes people will walk right past it. They won't even know. So there, he was able to orchestrate everything. I've heard about um, his sculpture for uh, of, of uh, Moses, which was never fully com- was never completed. And it's now in the church of San Pietro de in Vinicolo. Mm-hmm. Is that the mm-hmm. in, in Rome? Mm-hmm. And it's not in its original setting, or its intended setting, I should mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I've read about it is that Michelangelo would have been very upset about the lighting because he was so specific about lighting mm-hmm. and how seen, things were seen. Mm-hmm. When you when you see these in person. Um, um, it'd be interesting to see how they have an effect on morning, noon, night light. Because mm. I know that even Canova, who was several generations later, he often considered how his works would look by candlelight. Right. And he had a certain patina that he would put on his sculptures. I know Michelangelo treated his sculptures with a particular kind of, sometimes it'd be an acidic kind of horse urine yeah. and, and other things that would give a certain patina to the marble and stone. I, I was told on the Pieta um, in St. Peter's that he used his own urine. Interesting. <laughs> so I don't know. It's a little bit disgusting, but it's kind of interesting. It is disgusting. I mean, it is on some level, but it's just very practical. It's the idea yeah. that I, I know that 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 I'd read stories that uh, as Lorenzo that as Lorenzo de Medici is pulling up ancient sculptures out of various settings from building projects, so they'd be working on maybe a church in Florence, and um, a sculpture would be pulled up. That Michelangelo and Lorenzo, um, Lorenzo's group of artists that were around him, would have a large study collection of ancient pieces. And Michelangelo's first works were uh, were sculptures that he did to make them seem and look as if they had been dug up. Yeah. And he would dig. He would put them in the earth. Mm-hmm. He'd make sure the earth was particularly acidic. Cover, by putting in, cover them with feces sometimes. Yeah, with manure and other things. Mm-hmm. And then he would. He would fake an architectural dig site, <laughs> dig them up, and and so he was very aware of how things were affected that had been buried, yeah. and 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 the effect of different treatments on the stone themselves. Yeah, it's fascinating to me that that uh, it isn't just about um, the practicality of working with the stone as a carver, which is has its own difficulty, but that he was a chemist. He had to worry about these other things. As, uh-huh. As well, and um, and going back to to the statues, you asked me why they affected me so. Yeah, and I I think another reason is the um, the symbolism inside of the these pieces. So, say so more about that. You have night and day, and dusk and dawn, and so you have nude reclining figures symbolizing night and day, and dusk and dawn, and some people have speculated that these figures also, that there's a symbol within a symbol. So it's kind of like uh, Inception. You know, you have the dream within a dream within a dream. And so night symbolizes death. And if you look at the, the statue of night, which is probably the most famous, most people always remark that, first of all, she doesn't look like a female. Second of all, uh-huh. what is up with her left breast it just looks so foreign 
because yeah, um, it's, it's it's drooping to so the, I, to, know, to I, her left. I read an article by an oncologist who said that he has seen this in cancer patients, hmm. and he said that, in his opinion, most likely the model that Michelangelo was using had cancer, had breast cancer. And he deliberately chose someone who was older and probably suffering. Is that mm-hmm. the implication? And this is the figure that symbolizes death, night. You have the owl, the mask. And so this is just another symbol of death. And then um, it's not before you move on from from that question about his ability to to talk about to to to, to understand cancer in the human body and, right. and anatomical differences. Yeah. We always talk about um, Leonardo da Vinci, mm-hmm. who is a little bit senior uh, of Michelangelo as being the great anatomist who right. who who dug up bodies. But from what I have read, um, we now understand that Michelangelo almost 10 to 1 hmm. was digging up more cadavers and doing more anatomical studies on actual human bodies than than uh, than than uh, his than Mike than Leonardo mm-hmm. and maybe more than any other contemporary. So one of the criticisms I hear about the woman the the human body and his depiction of women hmm. is that oh he just didn't see women's bodies hmm. and so he put breasts on a male figure. Hmm. I don't think that that's possibly true. No. Another um, person that um, wrote an article speculated that the female figures were made to look a little bit more muscular, a little harder to um, desexualize them. Hmm. And I think that's very interesting because when I looked at these figures, I didn't get that feeling of arousal or any sort of sexual feeling at all from these figures. And so I think no. I think that he did this on purpose. I think this was a choice that he made so the figures wouldn't be taken out of context. And they are they're very moral figures for nude figures. They're what do you not, mean by that? They're not alluring. No, they're definitely not. It's not it's not even a question of it's on one level they're not sexual. On another level, they're not beautiful, mm-hmm. which I see as being mm-hmm. often two two different things, right? Mm-hmm. And then on another, and they're but they're not necessarily ugly. And I find either. I find them beautiful in a way that celebrates the power and strength of the human figure. And I think that's why what he was trying to get at. And you were talking about Leonardo. I think Leonardo saw anatomy from a, t- a scientific standpoint, where um, Michelangelo saw it from. Um, the standpoint of something that he was in love with. He was in love with the human form. It was very emotional for him. Do you think that he manipulated the human form? Yes. In what ways does he, does Michelangelo manipulate the human form that, that is different than other artists or that is different than what you would have seen naturally? Yeah, well, he put his figures in positions that are very, very difficult to get into. And I've tried with several different types of models, different body types, to try and get them into those positions. And it's very, very difficult. And so I think what he did is he would create a sketch, his ideal, his design, and then he would manipulate the figure to fit into his idea. The thing that I don't understand about that, that I'd want to ask a question to Michelangelo for, this is something that's near and dear to my heart, mm-hmm. is... is, is through my studies in how artists were trained from the Renaissance mm. going to the beginning of the 20th century, there was often this emphasis on ideal beauty mm-hmm. and that they had, and, and we could go, we'd spend forever talking about this, that is it had different interpretations over the generations. Right. Some more naturalistic, some more manipulated. 
but all of them influenced by some version of Greco-Roman classicism, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which was itself a moving target. Oh, yeah. And and when I look at Michelangelo, who was very close to the discoveries of Greek statue mm-hmm. in the Renaissance, he was often on dig sites as things were being pulled out. Mm-hmm. He And we also have copies of sarcophagi that he was looking at that he did when he was a young man. He was mentored by Donatello's... Um, 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 assistance. There, the Greco-Roman treatment of the human body is so different from his. It's almost like he went the complete opposite direction. Mm-hmm. There's a ver- there's a stillness to a lot of the statues in the Medici collection. Mm-hmm. There's this contrapposto, beautiful um, posing of the body. There's not a lot of twisting. There's not a lot of 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 really strong angular work. It's almost as if he's reacting against it rather than trying to achieve it. I think that he was. And I think that at some point in his career, he realized that he could infuse emotion and breathe life into these pieces. Hmm. So much so that when people saw them, they could feel it. I don't know if that's what the Greeks were after. The Greeks were after an idealization of the human body. And they created profoundly beautiful works. And if it wasn't for them... He never would have been able to create the works that he did because, like you said, he learned from them. But I think he he took it up a notch. He pushed it a step further. He started to understand things that maybe maybe hadn't come into their minds at the time. Yeah, I think it takes a, a more historical mind for me to know exactly what he was looking at and reacting against it. Because even the most—there was a period of Greek work that was—we call it Hellenism, mm-hmm. which is not what the Greeks would have called it. They called themselves Helen, Helen, Helena is right. Yeah. It, but but that was it was a, it was what is often referred to as art historians as the ugly period. Yeah. And even the ugly period is more naturalistic and less twisting of bodies, mm-hmm. less undulation, less than than what he was he was after. Okay, so so you go there, you see these works in person. Mm-hmm. They change you. Mm-hmm. Why? What? What? Can, uh, th- this may be an impossible to ask, but let's try and ask. Was it? Was it the scale? Was it the subjects? The the allegorical that he had chosen subjects? Was it the execution? Was it the quality? What was it all? I of think them? it what? was. I think it was everything. I think for the first time, I began to realize the possibilities of what you could do with sculpture. Do you think you could have seen that before that level of your education? I don't know. That's an interesting question. Let's let's because you started off as a painter, right? Mm-hmm. Let's let's give let's talk about you mm-hmm. now. You you came from an, an artistic family, kind of, yeah, <laughs> right. So you're you're connected to the the Fairbanks. So J B Fairbanks is my great grandfather. So J B Fairbanks was one of the four art missionaries sent by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints mm-hmm. to the Academy Julian, and he comes back after studying there in Paris. And um, he he does the Salt Lake Temple interiors. He also does a number of other... He's involved in temples. He's known as... He, he travels much of his life doing master copies and doing his own work. And he's known as a great teacher. He's one of the founders of the School of Art in not just Mormonism, but Utah mm-hmm. yep. in general. He's your great-grandfather. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you have stories that are passed down and did every did many of his children take up the arts? 
Um, yeah, there are several members of the family that are artists and um, curators and museums and in their own right. So yeah, were you a, connected to all of that? I got the sense that you moved around a lot. Yeah, not, I wasn't really. I remember going to Averd's studio. So JB's son, Averd Fairbanks, a famous sculptor, um, had a studio in Salt Lake, and I would go there as a child. And um, he was very influential on my mom's artistic, not really career, because because she really didn't have a career as a professional artist, but she definitely had a passion and a love for art, and she loved to paint. And he was very influential in her life, and she would go to him for advice and inspiration. And so I remember going there as a child, and he would bring my brothers and I in and say, here, take this chisel and come over to this marble statue and give it a good whack. So he was very hands-on, and he, he got us involved, and it was very exciting to me. Even though I wasn't interested in sculpture, at that age, I think it was very influential. Okay, so that's something I never heard before that he used. That I knew that he did a, some stone sculptures, mm-hmm. but that may strike some people as being normal. But by the early to mid, the early twentieth century, almost no sculptors were actually working on original stone anymore. Right, they'd be working in clay, and then those things would be ca- those clay statues would eventually be cast into some other material. Mm-hmm. So the fact that he was working on stone made him different. Yeah, it wasn't the the very best economic decision, I don't think, that, that he could have made. <laughs> Why is that? Say that. Say more about that. Well, it's it's difficult to make a living as a sculptor Yeah, because it's very expensive. Working in bronze, working in stone, it's very time-consuming. And um, I don't think there's quite the same market for sculpture as there, there is for painting. I, because you rely on a lot of um, public commissions, especially for larger works. And I, I know that's true. And it, it's not just a new thing. It's always been that yeah. way. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's, uh, I'd heard a statistic that 99% of all sculptures made in the 19th century were never cast mm. into a final project. Product. That's sad, isn't it? Yeah, they, were, they, were, they, uh, they would win, go to contests as plaster casts. Mm-hmm. And then the hope was that if they won an award that they would then get cast by the patron who had bought them. And so you've got all of these, these sculptors who were admired and contemporaries of their painter friends, and they spent much more expense on the sculpture itself. Mm -hmm. And now those paintings are worth 10 times as much as the sculptures and the sculpture and the sculptures were often not even cast. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and so for Averd, my mom would tell stories about how he would fly to Italy to pick out the stone for a particular piece and then have it shipped back here to the States. And so there's another expense. And so, um, Avard yeah. made a living at it though. He did. did you, was there part of you that thought I can do this too, because you he was your great uncle. I don't know if it was that as much as it was my father telling me that I could do anything that I wanted to if I put my mind to it. Wow. So he was, they were the, they were, they were encouraging parents. Very They weren't the kind that said, you should choose something practical, quote unquote. Yeah. Polar opposites too. My, my father was a businessman. Um, He'd made his first million dollars when he was 30 years old. So he was very left-brained. And my Hmm. mom was artistic and very right-brained. So they were polar opposites, but both very encouraging. You say was. Are both your parents passed away? Well, yeah. My father passed away, I guess it's been about 
five years now. My mom's still living, so. Your mom's. Does she continue to do art? She does, yeah. Interesting. Uh-huh. I would like to see her art yeah. at some point. Yeah, she has beautiful watercolors. So at what point did you start in, in earnest to do your own work? Um, six. Did, did I? Did <laughs> six? six. About six years old is when I remember um, consciously making the decision to try and become a professional artist. Um, it was probably about 22 uh, when I decided that this was what I was going to do with my life. How did you know at 22 that's what you wanted to do with your life? I served a mission for the LDS Church in St. Petersburg, Russia. And part of our mission, we would do service. Uh, and we did service at the Hermitage Museum. You could hardly find a more amazing place to do service. It was wonderful for me. And so our job was to try and get donations from wealthy European and American visitors. And it was wonderful. And then in return, we could go and visit the Hermitage for free as much as we wanted to. Were you the were, were, were you the one who was dragging your companions along who weren't as interested in you know, it? You know, luckily... A lot of my companions were artists, and I don't know how that worked out. And so we would decide to go for um, in the LDS church. You young men, they serve a two-year mission, and then every week they have one day called Preparation Day. And so they take that time to do their laundry and write letters and do the things that they need to go shopping. My companion and I, we would spend all day at the Hermitage. Were you drawn to sculptures at the Hermitage more than you were paintings? No. No? You were just drawn to all of it? Mm-hmm. I still am. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, you did both, didn't you? Didn't mm-hmm. you paint as well? Mm-hmm. So after going on your mission, is that when you had, had, had enrolled in school? As, as a, and where did you enroll? Um, at first, I studied with George Allen. He's a, a local Utah portrait artist. And he taught at Salt Lake Community College. Um, but he was very encouraging. And then after I was married, my wife and I went back to St. Petersburg, I had had some connections with the the Russian Academy of Art, and so I studied and apprenticed with. Yevgeny. When you say the Russian Academy of Art, you're talking about the school that is in its teaching descended from Repin, the Repinskoye Uchilishu. Yeah, uh-huh. from Ilya Repin, the, the the great the great Russian figurative artist of the late 19th century. And I was fortunate enough to be able to apprentice with the director of drawing, uh, Yevgeny Zubov, at the time. So I studied drawing and painting with him. I I didn't stay as long as I wanted to. Um, my mom suffered a severe stroke and my grandma passed away. And so we cut our, our trip short and then came back here to the States. But at that point, um, I was on my way. And so I came into contact with Vern Swanson at the Springville Museum. Director of the Springville Museum yeah. of Art for 25 years and and a force of nature in a of himself. Force of nature. Oh, yeah. He'd been an expert at that time. I imagine he would have. It was. It was at the time that he was bringing a lot of Russian art mm-hmm. to Utah, right? Mm-hmm. So there would have been an, an immediate sim- simpatico, I imagine. Yeah. And so I, I explained my situation and my desires to him, and he said, "You need to study with Patrick Devonis." And he said, "Why don't you come and um, you can be my guest? I'm going to a meeting." that will be held in Springville. And it was a meeting with all of the most notable artists in Utah at the time. And I really felt out of place. And so I was, uh, I, I think they had the meeting at a bank down there in Springville. 
Spring, uh, Springville, Utah. Do you know what the meeting was? They was were talking the about Olympics. Yeah, it was around that time. They were talking about trying to. Well, no, it would have been after that time. I think it was about two thousand, maybe two thousand five, two thousand four, maybe. Can't remember the exact date, but anyway, they were talking about building a, a school of the arts, in in Utah in Springville, like world class school, um, like no other school, and so they brought all of these incredible artists together in one room, sitting around a table, and I'm sitting next to Vern, feeling completely uncomfortable and out of place, and they would go around the table and ask people for their opinions, and I was trying to slink down in my chair and hide and. And I was just in awe. A lot of the the men that were in the room, uh, they had been um, idols of mine. And, and um, who were some? Who were some of them? Greg Olson, Gary Ernest Smith, um, Gary Lee Price. The room was just full. Bill of, Whitaker was he there as well? I think Bill Whitaker was there. Yeah. And people that I had looked up to, and so anyway, after the meeting, uh, Vern introduced me to Patrick, and he said that. Patrick was probably the very best living artist in the world. And he said, you want to study with Patrick. The problem is Patrick was living in New Jersey. He had been teaching at the New York Academy. and But I got to know him, and I ended up going out and studying with him. And I apprenticed, and I felt a little bit like Daniel LaRusso in The Karate Kid because the first day I went out there, Patrick's like, okay, we're going to start painting my house. <laughs> and so I was doing... Tr- He's catching flies with chopsticks. Yeah, he was and Mr. Miyagi. And, yeah. Yeah. and so he was um, he was uh, teaching me, and then I, I would help him paint his house. And turn. it worked out very well for me because I had owned a house painting business. So I knew how to paint houses. So everything seemed to be meshing very well. Patrick is one of these people that I... I'm sad left us geographically. He's yeah. from Switzerland. From Switzerland. Came to the United States, came to Utah, was in Utah for a while. Does, does, of, and his, and, and studied his studied with Richard Lack. Richard Lack, who was, was descended from that Boston School of Fine mm-hmm. Arts. Yeah. That, that goes from Lack to Ives Gamble right. to McGregor Paxton mm-hmm. to Jerome. Yeah, that's how they trace their genealogy. Yeah, and and uh, Devonis was that is about as as great of a master student lineage that you can get oh. from learning the craft itself of painting. And the subjects of his paintings are remarkably diverse. I don't know if he would describe himself as a symbolist or how he would describe his work. He, it's almost impossible. He used to, to tell me that he always got a kick out of people that would try to label him or place him in a specific genre because yeah. I, yeah, I kind of, I think he felt the same way. He but had if you were so to, many different interests. If you were to look at his work, he ha- is a master of everything from figure to landscape to still life. Mm-hmm. He Portraiture, has, yeah, everything. He has a really incredible range and it's not just technically well done, but conceptually mm. he's playing on an allegorical level, which mm-hmm. is something that this fascinates me about both you and him and this Michelangelo piece that you've chosen is that allegory is a very difficult thing to get an audience to appreciate because it presupposes a shared lexicon Mm -hmm. of some kind. Mm -hmm. And here Michelangelo has chosen some very deep waters to draw on. 
And if you don't look at night or day very carefully and think about it on that Oracle level, these just look like really impressive craft, Mm -hmm. pieces of craft, Mm -hmm. right? Does Patrick give you of a, a, a love of allegory with his oh, yes. work or did you is, is it is, did you have it and he expanded it what what I, I is... think I always had it to some degree and he definitely expanded it I always tell people I had studied with many different masters I learned more with Patrick studying in one day than I had learned my entire life up to that point what is rich that is such an astounding uh, um, comment um what 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 was it that Patrick gave, what did you, and I know you won't be able to summarize. It's, it's reductive. Oh, to I ask can, you oh, and I can tell you what it is. Patrick loves people. He is passionate about, about art and he loves trying to help people become the very best that they can be. I had studied with so many people that were interested in producing clones. They were very self-centered and they would say, you will learn how to paint like me. You will learn how to draw like me. And when I started to study with Patrick on that first day, he said, I'm going to give you the tools that you need to become the best person that you can become. Hmm. To say the things that you need to say in the best way possible. He said, I don't want you to paint like me or draw like me because there's only one me and there's only one you. And so I want to help you to become the best person that you can be. And no one had ever done that to me before. Mm-hmm. I had never been in a situation where a teacher was selfless and giving me information freely. It was, it was incredible. It was astounding. And someone asked me um, a short time ago if it was worth the time and effort that I spent flying out to New Jersey. At the time, my wife was pregnant with our second child, and I, I would fly out and stay in a tent in Patrick's backyard. Oh, my heavens. And I told, told the person, absolutely. And knowing what I know today, I would spend $10,000 to study with him for one day. Are you still in touch with him? Yeah. Yeah, we are very, very close. Um, I think of him more like an older brother. So you, you went to him to study painting. Mm-hmm. When did sculpture happen? Um, well, as part of the study, we um, did an ecochet. And so an ecochet is, uh, I think it's French for without skin. So That's this right. is where you learn how to sculpt the anatomy of the body, the origins, the insertions of the muscles, the bones, etc. It's a very technically rigorous oh, yeah. very scientific, exercise. Very time consuming. And Patrick saw an ecochet that I did. And he said, you are a sculptor that knows how to paint. (laughs) Was that the first time it had occurred to you? I had taken sculpture classes before, but I think, again, I think I hadn't taken sculpture classes with people that I could make a a connection to. And because I had made that connection to Patrick already, um, I trusted him and I believed him. And then suddenly I realized, oh yeah, I'm ambidextrous. You're ambidextrous. When I was young, I used to... Not metaphorically. You were actually ambidextrous. When I was young, I used to write with both hands. And I still remember, six years old, my mom sat me down and she said, you have to pick one hand or the other. You have to either be right-handed or left-hand. Because she knew I was going into school 
and this was going to be very difficult for the teachers. And so I picked my right hand. I this played. is back when we all had to do handwriting. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't know if kids have to choose that anymore. Yeah, I don't think they do. <laughs> but so to this day, I play sports with my left hand and I write with my right hand. But all of a sudden, things started to click and started to make sense. Oh yeah, okay, I'm ambidextrous. So sculpture, yeah. This but you're the makes you're sense. the grandnephew of of one of the great sculptors. So it just were you deliberately choosing not to go to? I don't know. It, it was never a passion. Painting, paintings inspired me, and I loved it. I loved sculpture that I saw. But painting for me was where it was at. I I, I loved it. So he says this. He, he and then and, and then, and then after that, he did add too. He said, "You can continue to be a painter," and he said, "But you will never be as good of a painter as you will be, sculptor." Did that did that kind of uh, did that that did that upset you when you no. heard that? No, no, it didn't upset me. Because um, sometimes when you hear your limitations from yeah. other people and they're true and you know they're true, yeah. it can be disappointing or it can be freeing. Yeah, it sounds me, like it was freeing to it you. It was very freeing. And so I decided I'm going to see if this is if this is right, if what he said is right. And so I started pursuing sculpture and, and started to realize, uh, you know, I, I am a lot better at this naturally. So what, when Even did, though I love painting. When did you go to Italy? I went to Italy in 2009. How long after Devonis or Devonis? Sorry, um, it was several years. Uh, I apprenticed with Patrick for apprenticed and studied. It was two years, two and a half years. And one thing that Patrick helped me to do was to learn how to teach myself and continue my education, which I still feel that I'm doing. In fact, um, Michelangelo has a motto: "Sempre imparo," always learning. Always learning. And that's—I've kind of adopted that motto, and I still feel like I'm still studying, still learning. But um, I began to study sculpture and develop a love with with sculpture, with marble, and I wanted to learn the techniques of the old masters. And so I went to Italy. I went to Pietrasanta and studied at the Pio Rossi Studio. Uh, with a an Italian master named Aeolo. I only know his first name. It was kind of like Prince, you know, he just had the one name. He was so so popular and so famous that he just had the one name, Aeolo. So so let me let me back up and ask a couple of questions that to, that, that goes to this Italy choice. Number one is why was was it important to learn how to carve marble? Because most sculptors don't feel like that's essential to being a sculptor. Most sculptors work with bronze foundries mm-hmm. who are traditional sculptors. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about, you know, people who work in various media, but it seems like it's it's a, it's on one level it's already technically challenging to be a sculptor in in ways that isolate you a little bit more, right? Mm-hmm. But then you're isolating yourself further by saying and limiting your options in some ways by needing to go work with a material that's mined, mm-hmm. that that has limitations of of needing to learn technical skills, yeah. and I say I'm using words that are stated in the negative. There are also the positive versions of it, which are you're going after the old masters. So why did you choose stone? Why did you want to learn that? Patrick had introduced me to a lot of artists that I wasn't familiar with. He gave me a book on 19th century sculpture, and I had seen works by some of these artists before, but I guess it never really clicked. 
But I started to become exposed to um, Carpo. Carpo. Oh, my heavens, Carpo. Yeah, I think Carpo was probably the main one, but American sculptors um, like Daniel Chester French, Augustus St. Gaudens, and I saw the possibilities, and then I started to pay more attention to the works that my uncle Avert had done. Um, there's a wonderful piece down in the Springville Museum of his wife and his child. It's a nursing mother, a nude. And it's probably, in my opinion, the best piece in the collection. That the original for that is in um, is is in the Academy in Florence, isn't it? In Pietrasanta. In Pietrasanta. Uh-huh, in the, Pietrasanta. The, sorry, the, the bozzetto, the little maquette. Uh huh. It's still there. Oh my heavens! And consequently, that piece down in Springville, um, when I was studying with Patrick, when I would come back home to Utah, he would have me go down to Springville and do memory drawings of that statue. And a memory drawing, this was something that Patrick was very big on. I would go down to Springville and stare at the statue for several hours without paper or pencil from one vantage point and then drive back home to Salt Lake and try and recreate it. Oh, so you wouldn't even just turn your back and do it. You'd go physically to a different space. Yeah. And I did it at the Princeton Museum too with Patrick when I was in uh, Was that helpful? Oh, yeah. Yeah, immensely. And so... um, when I started to really pay attention to these works that Avert had done and some of these other um, artists that I had loved and had become introduced to, I, I decided that I wanted to do one high-quality, multi-figure work in sculpture in my life. And it's still something that I haven't achieved, but it's something that I would love to do, um, something that is over life-size and highly complex and I'm certain that I'm going to have the opportunity to do it someday. And so I think everything that I have done in the past and that I'm doing right now is kind of leading up to that point. I don't know when it'll happen, but I feel like it'll happen, and, and I'm hoping to make it happen at some point. You had, you had mentioned to me at some point that uh, the fellow you apprenticed with in, uh, in Italy had a family connection. He did, yeah. This, this man, Aolo... Um, when he found out that Avard was my great uncle, um, I remember tears just welling up in his eyes. And my Italian is not is not very. It's not good as at good all. as your Russian. No, it's not, and even my Russian is subpar now. But my Italian wasn't very good. But um, luckily, the trans there was a translator there, and the translator told me that um, this man Aolo had studied, or not studied, but had been an apprentice and a help to Averd when Averd was living in Pietrasanta back before World War II. And so this man was just a young boy. That's astounding. And he had gone to trade school to be a sculptor. I think he was 11 or so. And his brother um, worked with him. And they had helped Averd out, so they knew him. This, this to me, it, what's amazing about it to me, um, it's amazing on so many levels. One level in particular is that San Pietro is close to these 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 marble quarries, mm-hmm. and these marble quarries have been in continual use since antiquity. Yes, mm. and there is arguably a master apprentice, master apprentice going back to an- antiquity mm-hmm. of skills that have been passed down. Michelangelo, his family were bankers, but he his nanny, who he was sent to live with from the age of six, age you started, goes and is sent to the area roundabout there. And it, not specifically that town, 
but he's sent next to the quarries and he plugs into that system Mm -hmm. and that sets him up for his career. Mm -hmm. Fairbanks goes there, plugs into the same, (laughs) same system. You go there. It's just, it's just amazing. We think of, I think often when we think of modernism in the West and, and the break with traditional art, we think that those skills are also lost. Mm -hmm with the generations. But what we but but to me when I hear stories like this, I think, wow, they're really it would take an enormous amount of effort to destroy those chains of master oh, yeah. apprentice. Those skills are con- continual. Mm-hmm. And there are a few younger people that are carrying on that tradition, not many. Mm-hmm. When I was there, um, ALO told me that in fact, I think they had to order to have a point machine. A point machine is a tool that you use in sizing up the marble. And and um, they had to order one because nobody was buying them. And he said that most young people that come to Italy to learn how to carve, they're only interested in expressive carving where you, you get the block of stone and then you go at it with pneumatic tools and, and just start to create something that's very emotional. And, um, and sometimes you can get some very positive results but for him it was very meaningful that somebody wanted to learn how to do things the way that the Italians had been doing things for a thousand years or more and he felt like he was passing this knowledge on and I I wish that I would have or would have been able to have kept up as much as I wanted to I do have a little bit of stone that I've brought back with me but it's it's very expensive and very time consuming. And unless you have a specific project, you know, with a patron and a commission, it's it's very difficult to go at it on your own unless you're independently wealthy and very few artists are. So. You recently won an award uh-huh. for the National Sculpture Society. I did. What was it? And what did you win it for? It is the Alex J. Edel Grant. And it probably doesn't sound like a big deal. And I guess on the larger um, scope of things, it's probably not a huge deal. But for me, it's a big deal. It is a big deal. For me, I've, this, this is, was reported widely. It's like an Academy Award for sculptors. So and and so it's great. It's so it's a, a grant. It's not a large sum of money, but um, it will help me to get um, some work done, personal pieces that I'm working on right now, things that I'm passionate about. So you've got the freedom to do whatever you want in yeah. particular. It's not for specific work. No strings attached. So you've, mm. you've, um, it's first of all, congratulations. It Thank is you. a huge honor. Thank you. And, 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 uh, and to know that somebody locally won it is, is, uh, it's a source of pride for me personally, and I'm sure for our community, but it's not the first time you've won an international award, the art renewal center, which runs the, the salon every year. Right. Uh-huh. You've been a regular submitter and award winner at that uh-huh. event. Yeah. That's so a great you, organization. You are playing and I don't, it's not, it's just, an, it's just an observation. You've been playing at an international level for some time, your works. And I've been to your studio and we've known each other for, for a little while now. Um, it strikes me that almost every work I've seen done sketched, in your studio is on um, it, it, it is is on a monumental scale, mm-hmm. right? It's mm-hmm. it's it's even though they're small, mm-hmm. they're on a monumental scale. Yeah. Before I before we talk about your individual works, I gotta I, maybe I shouldn't let this pass by without asking. By my standards, you're famous. Do oh. you think of yourself as famous? Oh no. <laughs> no, I think of myself as. Uh, a little artist working in obscurity in his garage in Provo. 
<laughs> See, this is this is the irony I think of our community is that I just came back from a festival um, back east, where um, they were the, the, there was a lot of discussion about when we as a people will arrive, uh-huh. and 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 one of the qualifications that seemed to be thrown out quite a bit is that the world would recognize our artists, hmm. and and um, and there was the question out there of when will we achieve that. But the irony is, is that we've got a lot of artists who have. You could, right, you could argue are. that, that uh, Avard was was world famous. Yes. Um, the fact that you're going to San Pietro and that his assistant is now a world famous teacher there, and that his works are there. You've got um, Arnold Freeberg. You've got um, even now contemporary artists. I would put you, Jeff Hine, um, uh, uh, Mary Sauer, um, Casey Childs, all winning international awards and getting international recognition. But if you talk with any one of you who I, I know all of you, any one of you, none of you think that you're as well known as you actually are. <laughs> you're so humble. It's remarkable. But uh, it, uh, um, I don't necessarily need a reaction from that. I just want to tell you that that's how I feel about, oh. <laughs> about you. And it's, an, it's, it's a huge honor. Um, it is a huge honor. As long as you think I'm famous and potential patrons then that's all that counts okay (laughs) (laughs) so when i when i look at um at your works as i was saying before before i i I felt like i needed to get to to, uh get back to that the um this your works seem to be conceived on a monumental level even your small works Mm -hmm. and and also so that's that's one Mm -hmm. another one is Michelangelo, as we said before, he did a lot of, of females, but I don't know if he's as well-known for the females as a lot of his male sculpture. Mm-hmm. Your works seem to be allegorical like Michelangelo's. Mm-hmm. And maybe I shouldn't be comparing this all to Michelangelo. Maybe just within the context of our conversation. Mm-hmm. But, but you seem to focus a lot on the female form mm-hmm. in what you do mm-hmm. and to use it in a lot of different and very interesting ways. Mm. Why is the female form so central, or is it? it? Maybe it isn't, to to the work that you do. I know that you do other things. Yeah, I know. I think that it is. I think that um, my mother had a lot of influence on me as a child. So I'm one of eight children, uh, two older sisters, but they were mostly out of the house when I was growing up. They were off to college. Where do you fit in birth order? Uh, second to the youngest. Okay. And so it was just a household of boys. And I remember noticing, even at a young age, the qualities that my mother had, these very noble, feminine qualities, virtues, um, love, compassion, kindness, forgiveness. And I remember I was, I admired her even at a young age. And so I think that that had quite an influence on me as a young, as a young boy. And... Also, I think that the female form, from my standpoint, it lends itself a little bit easier to the art that I create. So I think it's a little easier for me to utilize the female figure in my pieces, maybe just because it comes naturally to me a little bit more. I'm not sure why. Um, But I do love working with the male form as well. Um, To me, when it comes down to it, it's all just form. Hmm. But I do think that there is, I don't know, a special, a special quality and a way to carry a message across using the female figure. So 
we could talk about a lot of your works. Um, there's so many of them that I that I, that I love. Um, we're we're getting um, we don't have a lot of time left. I, I I would like you to pick one work. Maybe it's something you're working on now. Maybe it's something you'd like to highlight mm-hmm. that we can we can describe your process mm-hmm. you go through, and then we can and we can put the image up uh, along to accompany the podcast. Okay. That that uh, you you would pref- like to talk about most that now, you're doing. Yeah, it's very difficult, especially when it comes to process, because I am such, I guess, an anomaly as an artist. Sometimes I'll do a sketch with pencil and paper or a sketch in pen and ink. Sometimes even with paint, I'll sketch something out and then work from that sketch and start to create a clay sketch. Sometimes I'll just start right into a finished work without having any sketches or any reference. So it's a little bit difficult to describe my process because each piece feels like it's uh, unique. Um, But one piece that I would like to talk about is Outside the Circle. So this is a piece that I created, oh, I think it's been about five or six years now, and um, created the piece. It is an allegorical piece for female figures. I was inspired to create the piece while I was at a park with my family. And there was a large youth group that they'd been having an activity at this park. And then the activity had ended and they were all waiting for their rides to come pick them up. And so my wife and I were sitting on a bench and watching four girls interact. And three of the girls were talking and laughing and interacting with each other. And they seemed like they were friends. On a side note, all four of these girls look like they could have been related. Hmm. Very similar. Hmm. Um, But for some reason, they were purposefully excluding one of the girls. Hmm. And I knew what that was like. I mean, I'd been on both sides of that before, and I think everyone has. I'd been the excluder in my life and the excludee. And so I could tell what was going on. You know, I'm observant as an artist. And my heart broke for this girl and just ached. And for about an hour, I watched this happen. And part of me wanted to go over and go over and talk to the girl and console her or talk to the other three girls and say, hey, you realize what you're doing is it's not cool. But I I kind of felt like a photographer for National Geographic, you know, I was where you might want to to intervene when you see a cheetah taking down a gazelle or something. But, you know, for the sake of science, you're going to stay back and and observe, and so that's that's what and I was let, doing. Let and the terrible I, and reality I do, of 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 teenage interactions right. unfold in front of you, right? And I let my heart break hmm. and just ache for this girl. And I remember going home and starting to sketch this out. It was so powerful, I couldn't get it out of my head. I couldn't get it off my mind or out of my heart. And so I I needed to create. And so. Um, my wife came out and she posed for all four of the figures from life. It was a little bit different for me, the style. Um, it's very loose. Um, Even the, the, the way that the, the final, I, it looks like you did it in clay. It's in clay, yeah. Um, impressionistic may not be the right term, but, yeah. but it's, uh, it's definitely not the sharp edge of a classical line. Right. 
even though it has very clearly all of the 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 uh, the 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 the, uh, the musculature, mm-hmm. the figures, the skeletal, everything seems. I to feel be right the f- in line. yeah. I feel the form is there. Yeah. But I was going trying to go for something that was different, something that could invoke a reaction or a feeling from someone else when they saw the piece. And I hope that I accomplished it. I don't know if I have or not. Um, there have been several people that tell me that they like the piece. Um, so it's not a big seller. You know, this is a, it's a part of me. This was something that was very important to me as an artist. And I did this also almost as a, as a maquette for a larger work. Someday I hope to be able to do this as a, a larger piece and maybe even more finished, more refined. And so, um, yeah. One of, one of the questions I have about it, and I, and I know that uh, we're, we're running out of time, is, is these, these pieces often benefit from telling a backstory like this. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that you have to have a lot of trust in your audience to, 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 to do something like this mm-hmm. and to allow them to explore the idea. Do you accompany your works of art with a lot of description or do you let them turn it into what they want? Or do you not know? I don't, you know, it's something that I'm still trying to figure out. Um, there's a part of me that wants to free the viewer up to make their own conclusions. Hmm. Um, sometimes I'll give a little bit of a backstory so they can understand my thought process behind it. So I'm kind of all over the place. Sometimes hmm. people will ask me if I post things on Facebook or Instagram, they'll ask me to, to give a description or the motivation behind the piece. And so I'm beginning to feel more and more that people want that. But you resist it on some level. I think I do at some point, yeah. Well, let me me, uh, end by asking a question. You've got strong feelings about Michelangelo. Uh Within within LDS culture, there is this... um, there is this uh, comparison that's often brought up mm-hmm. of uh, from Spencer W. Kimball's talk given in 67 of uh, Mormon Michelangelo coming yeah. one day. What will it take to have a Mormon Michelangelo in your opinion? I think when artists on a whole start asking themselves about the motivation behind their work, if the motivation is fame, glory, and riches, maybe not as soon as we would like, but if the motivation is what can I do to improve the quality of life for those people that share this earth with me and the people that will come after me. So you, it's not as even as necessarily that, specific execution of or style, no. or or even specific kind of work that goes a specific place. It's different. It's the intent behind different the artist. styles are going to relate to different people, and I think it's great if everyone did the same type of work. It would be a very stagnant and boring world, yeah. and so different people will react differently to different pieces. And I I love all different types of artwork. But I think when the artist is sincere, when he or she is honest with themselves, 
about what they are doing and what they're trying to communicate, that's when the magic happens. Hmm. That's when you start to change lives. That's when you bring beauty and empathy and joy into the world. And it, and time will tell whether these pieces will last, you know, for thousands of years or not. That's one reason why I think Spencer Kimball um, held up Michelangelo as a, a model. And I think it's a good model. Is it lasting? Yeah. And I think it's good. I don't know if I like the term Mormon Michelangelo because I don't even know if I like the term Catholic Michelangelo. Because that yeah, it doesn't make him accessible no. to everyone. No, you know it's very limiting and exclusive, and yeah. so I think that people should look to, to be very opening with their work and and to not be exclusive and, um, yeah. Hopefully that answers the question a that little. That does. Bit. That does. Well, it's been an enormous honor to have you here. Personally, it's just. I just am thrilled anytime I get to sit and talk with you. So oh, thank you. Great. I've, I feel so the same way. Coming. I'm very grateful to the sculptor Michael Aaron Hall for joining us for this episode of Mormon Visual Culture, presented by the Zion Art Society. You can see the works we discussed, both by Michelangelo and by Michael Aaron Hall, on our website, zionartsociety.org, under the podcast tab. For more interviews with artists, collectors, and scholars, subscribe to Mormon Visual Culture on iTunes. I'm Micah Christensen. Thank you for listening.